0: Having proven an audience for the adult drama with Girl and Dragon Tattoo Adaptation, come 2014 we would see another dark thriller being adapted by David Fincher with Gone Girl. The script itself having already been circulated around with Reese Witherspoon originally wanting to play the title of Gone Girl, Amy, uh, when the film was originally picked up for adaptation when a manuscript of her novel was uh, passed around in 2011. With Fincher now having already proven himself not only as an industry name, but also as a person well capable of directing such dark thrillers, there was much excitement obviously going into this film, especially with Flynn's novel having received such rave reviews. But with a cast so eclectic that included both Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, as well as comedy standouts, standouts such as Neil Patrick Harris, Tyler Perry, and... Casey Wilson would this be a film that would be able to live up to the dark roots of the novel I'm Elwood I'm Kim and you're listening to Moves and Tea let's take it to the booth (laughs) To uh, the end of Movies and Tea. (laughs)
1: The end of Movies and Tea? End of season five of Movies (laughs) and Tea, maybe?
0: (laughs) So, yes, we're obviously wrapping up our David Fincher season tonight with Gone Girl, a film which, I would say, out of all his filmography, this was the one which, when it was released, had more people wanting to talk about it than perhaps any other film in his filmography and i think it was a real sort of a sign of how far fincher had come as a director when we look back at the early days of like alien 3 where he's being chewed out by the studios and then we've got 7 and fight club being these real sort of surprise breakout hits and other films such as the game uh sort of simmering under the surface only to sort of later get that cult status and now here with Gonga we've got Fincher established as a powerhouse and certainly someone capable of really creating films which are not only visually stunning but also tap into some of the darker recesses of the human psyche. I mean Kim going into Gonga I mean had you read the book prior to it because I went into this one blind uh, on my initial watching of it of course.
1: Oh, I am a mega Jillian Flynn fan. So, at the point that this movie came out, I had already read all her three books. So, <laughs> big fan. Um, and, I mean, Gillian Flynn is a fantastic writer. So, this book was actually... It's, it's one of my favorite, even though it's the last book that she wrote. Um... Well, it's the last book that she wrote because I don't think she wrote another book afterwards. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great story. I mean, Gone Girl, the way it was structured in the novel was kind of a little bit not sure how it would work in the spectrum of the the whole, um, just in a movie and how they were going to set it up to make it work. Uh, luckily, I mean, in the hands of Fincher, I, I was really happy with how it turned out because it was if I remember correctly, and I haven't reread the book since. So I might be wrong. it's been it's been a while. So I think that if it's fairly similar, but then they change some of the things. I think one of the most notable changes is how Neil Patrick Harris meets his end. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that that part was was one of the changes that they had. But I mean, it's it all works really well in the spectrum of just like the movie itself and, how it's all set up and how the thriller unravels itself and the, how they portray the character of Nick and Amy and their relationship. Uh, I really think like the movie really worked, even though, I mean, obviously, I think that with a movie like this, the question is always, if you've already read the book, you already know the twist. So will the twist still be able to get you and how it's all set up? And I mean, I honestly, I went to the theaters Um, I think probably opening weekend or so and I took my husband there and the thing I wanted to see was how he would react to the twist (laughs) and that's the most important that's like the most entertaining part is watching like a twist that you think is going to be so mind-blowing and then watching someone react to it and in my mind like he reacted exactly like I thought like he was like oh shit oh shit oh my god type of deal so it was
0: (laughs) oh definitely so and I think it's certainly with in the hands of Fincher it's it's almost like the film is split into two halves. We get and this is all perfectly perfectly plays into the ultimate game that's being played here. Um, and like yourself, I would, I watched it by myself originally and I showed it to my wife later and it was sort of like you watching for that that turning point moment where the big sort of twist twist comes and you're just looking at the person you're wanting to see their reaction to it and I think she more than um more than delivered when she doesn't proclaimed that bitch. <laughs> we watching it and it's like there it was totally worth it. Um But yeah, I mean obviously the script itself it was adapted by Flynn, which is kind of unusual. I mean normally when you have an author involved, they work on the initial draft and then a more screen- experienced screenplay writer will like to sort of come in and polish it up. But with as part of the deal um for the option of the book, Flynn was sort of brought on to write the script as well and this was her first attempt at screenwriting and she basically tackled it by studying screenplay books and also meeting with Steve Cloves who wrote the screenplays for the Harry Potter series and throughout the sort of process she would like write swathes of, of of work, and then she would send them over to Fincher, and then they would go back and forth over the phone over conversations to rewrite scenes, often dozens of times, until they sort of tapped into the vision that Fincher had for the film, and I mean, this isn't a short book that we're talking about adapting, I mean, it's some 500 pages, so to hack that down, I mean, obviously there's parts of the book that haven't made it across, and Flynn herself basically said that she was never precious about casting aspects of the book out. So there's aspects of of this, such as flashbacks to Nick's mother. Uh, there's also the character Desi's mother, who doesn't appear in the film, and there's also a lot of the parental sort of storylines that are lost in the process. And I think it really sort of streamlines the plot down to its sort of key characters to stop it from getting muddled and bringing other people's sort of viewpoints, which I think it's so key to the film's effectiveness is that we don't have too many viewpoints. We want to keep it on really... Essentially, just two viewpoints. Mm -hmm. We want to have um, Nick's and we want to have Amy's viewpoint. And I think that's where we get that wonderful divide in the film where initially we're following Nick as he's trying to figure out what the hell's happened to his wife. And then we're finding... Following Amy as she basically reveals what she did and why she did it. Um, So it's... It's a very fascinating and very unique thriller, um, and one that it's. It's. I want to say it's different than what we've seen from Fincher, but at the same time, you can see there's elements of his other thrillers within this film as well. So it was. Uh, it was definitely a pleasant surprise when I saw this one for the first time.
1: I think. I think with adaptations, it's always like that. You always don't know what's going to happen, and I think that. More people should be thinking about the whole asking the novelist who do, who wrote these source material if they're available to write their to write their 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 screenplays or at least participate in it because I feel like it makes more sense because you know like they know the core concept of where the novel like lies its most important things. Obviously, like you said, they in this one they cut out a lot of the Tangents and some of the other characters, and it really, and they and and they really like. I think it feels like they sped up the ending a little bit, so they sped up, you know, like the second half of the 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 movie itself when we flip over to Amy's point of view and why she did it and all that stuff. You kind of feel like it's it's definitely less detailed than the book itself, but it's not a bad thing because it gets everything, all the message that you want done, and and just really highlights the type of character that Amy is. And this movie, in essence, and this whole story is really about the viewpoint of of really these two characters, their mindset, where they're at, and this little, I guess, game that they're playing with each other as they realize, obviously when they realize that, uh, Nick realizes that he's part of this this game that Amy set up. <laughs> and And kind of like, finds and kind of like gathers himself back after the shock um so it's 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 interesting i wonder if if the casting you felt like there was it was good like did you expect these people i mean would you have preferred reese witherspoon to (laughs) rosamund pike (laughs) i mean i wouldn't (laughs) but i mean uh, rosamund pike i think is just she's she's you know she's obviously I feel like less less known. Because she's been in, like, she's been in, say, like, things like I've seen her before in Pride and Prejudice, and then I think she was, I don't know, I think it was after this, she was in Jack Reacher?
0: Yes, she was in, uh, yeah, she's in Jack Reacher 2020, wasn't she? So, she was also in Doom in t- way back in 2005, but it was yeah. uh, Dying of a Day which I remember first seeing her. Because all the the British press and all the press for... Trying the film and stuff, we're all like focusing on her being this posh Bond girl. And they were just like, every time they were like talking about it, it was sort of like, oh yeah, she's the lay of Bond's life. And I'm thinking, well, that's sort of limiting her as an actress to really just sort of boil it down to this idea that she's, you know, she's just a posh lay. But I think with Rosamund Pike, she's very hard to sort of place where you're going to where you're going to sort of put her because as I said she obviously has that sort of uh, posh demeanour to her and I think that certainly plays up well here because she's obviously comes from uh, well-to-do stock so to to speak her parents have created this whole legacy of books based around her called The Amazing Amy series and Mm. as she points out um, early in the sort of scene the fact that Amy in the books is always sort of one step a- ahead of her uh, the fact that she fails in that in uh, volleyball yet her fictional self makes varsity and she's always she her parents seem to be like living this like almost fantastic fantasy life for their daughter through this uh for this fictional character and in many ways it feels like when we look at the scheme that she concocts herself it's almost like. Amy's trying to win one for herself. It's sort of like, oh if amazing Amy is so good, let's see her top this one. Um <laughs> So yeah, it's she. I think Rosemary Pike does is an absolutely fantastic for the role. Especially for the character of Amy that we're being that, that is being sold here because Essentially, when she's introduced, I mean, Nick is kind of like you know, he's the he's the bit of rough. Um, he's writing for a men's, men's magazine, and she sees potential in him to make her the ideal man for herself. And, um, this sort of like comes into play in the in sort of like the second half of the film, which you know, she talks about how she made all these changes to mold him, and it was ultimately life that got in the way of her plans and that ended up with her being transplanted from new york and this sort of like privileged life living in the brownstone um to having to deal with suburban missouri which in many ways she kind of resents nick for uh the fact that she's had to give up on all these things and by concocting this plot is her way of not only getting out but also getting revenge on what Nick has reduced her to being. Um, and I think that it's just when you look at the complexity of her of her plot, what she like puts into puts it into this sort of scheme, it's just absolutely fascinating. And where normally we're sort of always sort of, like, one step behind the the killer, the psychopath, uh, whatever way you want to view her characters being. Uh, with the with Gongo, it sort of takes that unique angle of, OK, well, now we're going to try and play her at her own game. And I think that's where the film really gets interesting, when you bring in Tyler Perry's lawyer character, who's basically uh, training Nick how to present himself to the media and to the police and just basically... Play, uh, play play, this completely different um, person that Amy is expecting him to be. But, um, I mean, how did you find the character Tanner Bolt? I found him a very surprising sort of character. The Especially when he's introduced as like um, this, this sort of like a lawyer who can win the unwinnable cases. You expect him to be kind of more of a sleazy, more of a slimeball, but he's actually a very by-the-book and just knows how to play the system kind of um, lawyer. Or ten I should say
1: he's kind of the likable guy which is very different because usually like you said like lawyers aren't exactly the likable characters no uh, but Tanner Bolt is different I, I thought his his character was something of a breath of fresh air in this really like tense situation where all these characters are being so so tense there's this kind of like dark comedy element when Tanner Bolt comes in and then he his interaction with you know obviously like Nick, And the whole part where, you know, Nick is this awkward guy, he really doesn't know how to act in public, especially, like, showing that he's lost his wife, kind of thing. Like, his wife has vanished, and he's, like, being very awkward, which his sister points out, obviously, constantly. And, and Tyler, and and Tanner, Tanner Bolt is this character which transforms him, gives him this kind of a new idea of how to treat the situation, to kind of bring things back to his side because it's kind of like but I think for him he also is enjoying this because he this is like I mean at the at the end of the movie he really says one thing like they're 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 really like messed up pretty much <laughs> they're like the most messed up couple he's ever dealt with or something <laughs> like that I forgot I forgot his exact line but um, Oh yeah it was, was... it was it was it was like he had all these one liners that were truly truly entertaining to watch uh, to like to watch and listen like I I don't think I actually I think I've only seen Tyler Perry in maybe one or two other things and I'm not ai don't have a really great um, impression of him in anything else but I mean Tanner Bolt is definitely like one of those roles where it stands out so well and in this type of movie it's kind of like that character who's he really is he, he really is kind of like, he doesn't, what do you, how do you say? Like, he's he's a character where you, he really doesn't care about these things. He's, he just wants to win the cases. He just wants to win the case. He wants to make him likable. And he's laughing through the situation, which obviously is really messed up. And he can't believe that this is happening. But somehow he's just like, okay, well, you know, cases this is how you win them you become a likable guy to the jury and the public and then you just play you just play the game properly and you'll win the case type of yeah. deal, right so he's just getting the job done
0: oh yeah definitely Tanner, Tanner continuously has this detachment from the case i mean he has no sort of emotional connection to anyone involved in this case i mean as you almost get the feeling that if even if he loses the case he still gets to go home at night he's not going to prison It's sort of like it would just be, oh, well, that was a a loss. But at the same time with Tanner, he knows that it's not just about what happens in the courtroom. It's about knowing how to play all these other elements of the system, in particular the media. We have that great scene where he's coaching uh, Nick when he's going to go and make the appearance on um, the Ellen Abbott show. Who's uh, mm-hmm. like a like talk show based on um, Nancy Grace, and he's there throwing peanuts at him in the hotel room, and he's like, "I'm gonna keep throwing nuts at you every time you screw up." And I oh, just gummy loved those... bears,
1: right? Gummy bears.
0: Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> I just love the fact this is these, these like motivational uh, things, and he never looks at losing his cool, but he's someone who just knows how to play the system. He knows how people are going to react, and where most of the lawyers will be sort of more focused on, like, working the evidence or the angles. He just knows that, you know, cases are won before they even get into court because it's all about the public perception, and that's what he spends most of his time changing with Nick because when we see Nick, who's left to him himself before, prior to, like, the arrival of Tanner on the scene, he's kind of a bit clueless. He's sort of, you know, he's there smiling during the... Um, the, the original appeal for help and he's uh, posing, he poses for a picture with uh, one of the uh, with one of these crazy local women who keep, keeps offering to make him a frito pie um, and then when he like has double thoughts about it she completely freaks out of him in like, one of the more bizarre scenes but um, yeah, I, I the whole character of, of Nick Dunn, I think Ben Affleck just totally nails this character so it feels like a character not too detached from himself as a person i mean he's this sort of down-to-earth guy who owns a bar with his sister He's just you know he's just uh everyday sort of joe who's um yeah. just happened to be involved to in this this uh exceptional woman and i think that again is also where rosamund Pike really comes into play i mean you can see her being the sort of character uh, that amy is um, and I think it's only sort of furthering emphasize like her sort of family background when you have the scene of Nick and her mother walk along the beach and she's like got this disdain for all the locals and like just the fact that she's been forced to hang around in this town um, just to you know do the show the proper face and um, and that to try and get her daughter back so.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, Ben, I mean, ben Affleck is, uh, I mean, just to go back to that, I mean, Ben Affleck was, I've never said this about any other movie in my life, but when I saw that Ben Affleck was casted, like, before he was casted, I wanted Ben Affleck to be the character of Nick, because I really? felt like, and, and I've never cared so much about Ben Affleck, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't watch a whole lot of Ben Affleck movies, I like the movies he directs, but, I mean, yeah. overall, this character really, like, you can see him when you're reading the book, like, for me... When I was reading the book, it was a face of Ben Affleck that I saw <laughs> hmm. <laughs> picturing the scenes come to life. You know, that that was that's what it is. So to me, this adaptation worked was because this this character of Nick was exactly how I imagined him to be. And Ben Affleck pulled it off, obviously, really, really well. And when you look at Rosamund Pike, I think it was a surprising choice for me initially, because obviously I'm not in the UK. I don't know her her reputation or anything as much i've only seen like one or two movies of her at that point when she was casted and to me i didn't feel like you know obviously that she would be casted in a movie like this and yet i think it was the surprise of of her playing amy so well and such a complex role and really delivering that that really brings the character home because amy is just a pouch of you know, like she's a surprise. She's like hmm. a jack in the box, <laughs> or whatever, like those uh, those mystery boxes, right? You open and you don't know what you're gonna find. Um, but like she's 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 such a like like Rosemont Pike really gives this character so much, and it has to do with the fact that you don't know how she's gonna act in this role. You don't know, like you didn't expect her to play this role so well and have that depth to it. Because Amy is all kinds of crazy. (laughs) She's like, just unimaginable how she does everything. And coming from me, who I've read this book before I went in, and I didn't reread it to go into the movie, so I left a little bit of, you know, like, question marks, giving it some space to have its own reiteration, because I don't mind it not being adapted to the T, because I understand that movies need to have their elements that work better in movies than in books. But, I mean, for me, Rosamund Pike is just, you know, she does Amy so well. And I really don't think, like, when you have a role like this, you wonder if you're able to ever have a role like this, which you can top it, because, I mean, Amy's such a, such a, such a well-written character. Like, I, I love it. Every single part of it I love. She She's just She's just messed up in the best way.
0: <laughs> well, she's also... Th- when, normally, when you have the character, who sort of plans out a plot so meticulously as she does. And the fact that we get to see it, all the little details that she puts into, puts in. And then when her plan goes south, the fact she's able to come up with a completely new plan... Like, almost mm-hmm. on the fly. She's, like, always feels like she's, like, two steps ahead. And this isn't even the first time that she's done this, as we find out that she accused a, another boyfriend of uh, of rape, and we find out the, exactly all the little things that she did to sort of frame him. And mm-hmm. it's so much funny that when we get, when she meets up with uh, Desi, this person that says he puts he's been kept on the leash by her for like the last twenty odd years, that she's she's presented with this life that she thinks that she she wants, and it's only when Nick starts playing a game that she realises no, she doesn't want this at all, um, and starts hatching this plot plot to really get find a way back to Nick and at the cost of sacrificing Desi, and I have to say that when. If we look at the character Desi, she he's almost feels like the male counterpart to Amy They're very similar in many ways the fact that both are trying to are sort of responsible for manipulating people they like into mm-hmm. becoming the vision of that person that they like so that when he's at a guest house he's there he's buying her like clothes and jewelry and hair dye and um, all these things so he can get a change back into the Amy that he remembers. Um, and I thought that was really but, sort of interesting the fact that she's she's pulled this plot herself and now she's having the same thing pulled on herself.
1: Yeah, I mean Desi's character is really interesting as well. I mean, he he is like I didn't really see him as as the counterpart, but now I see it. Um it's a really good point. And I think it's just the point that he grew into that role. Because I think when the beginning of them being together, like, the 20 years that he's been on this leash, um, and apparently with, what, a a restraining... Didn't he have a restraining order? That they... That he's still so... He's kind of in love with a fantasy, right? He's in love with this person. It's like, you never let go of your first love type of deal. And he... He's he's turned, I think this whole desire and these last, the years of wanting this person has turned him into a manipulative person because now he has the means to be to be like uh, to, to hold her down because he knows that she desperately needs somewhere to go and he's playing he's playing it so that he's gonna be her protection and you can see those little looks that he gives when he notices how she's still really interested in watching how Nick is going to react to the situation on like when she's watching TV of him like in interviews and whatever and you see this little thing and he's he's trying to craft her into this person just like she tries to craft craft Nick and the whole situation with this is people who like to control don't like to be controlled right yeah. So Amy needs to seek it out because obviously at this point she has no money. She has nothing left. But the only thing she can do is find some drastic way to leave. Because she she is not going to be controlled. She doesn't want to be part of a relationship where she, can, she has no control over. And this person is not who she wants to change. And that's why she would go back to, to Nick, a person that... Pretty much, she hatched the entire revenge on. Um, I mean, she she got she was angry with him about all these flaws that he has that she's willing to to forgive, I guess, in a certain way, as long as he's he stayed by her side and kind of like just trapped him by her side.
0: Well, I mean, the whole plot really that she hatches against him just basically comes out the fact that he she finds out he's been sleeping with one of his students. And that she's obviously not, she's feeling underappreciative for uh, turning him into the man that he is compared to who he was.
1: But I think it's, it's, Nick's character is kind of unlikable. As you see him (laughs) go through the interactions in the beginning, you really feel like he's kind of a loser. Because you can see Amy, Amy suffers the same things as he does, but she is rock hard. Like she, she doesn't, everything that happens to her is things that nick makes a decision to do so moving to suburban missouri was because his family had issues and he uprooted them without discussing with her type of deal and things like that happens and and when he loses his job he doesn't know how to be unemployed so he just plays video games all the time and and whatever right he just does about he spends a lot of money and all these things kind of pile up as she sees this person that she's worked so hard to build into a better person, kind of revert back to this loser that she first met that she thought she could control. And he's not coming back now because with the recession and being moved to suburban Missouri, she doesn't have anything now. She has nothing except for her trust fund. And when, you know, in need, they have this whole conversation about how she gives, she, the turning point is when she doesn't discuss something with him, and she lends all her, uh, the majority of her trust fund to her own parents, in emergency. And it, it's just to her, it's really, it's really like Nick is this person who relies on her for money because he doesn't have any either, but she mm-hmm. does, and he doesn't work hard for, for his life, type of thing. He doesn't work hard in hard times, I guess. So I mean, when she has that huge monologue, and she she's driving down the road after she, we realize that this whole plot is is her plot type of thing. To as a revenge plot, she ends the whole thing with you know grown up work for things, grown ups pay, and grown ups suffer consequences. And, oh, yeah. The the cool girl
0: monologue is just so fantastic. And I think yeah. that's where where Rosamund Pike really sort of shines. Because before up until this point, she's like, you know, she's just the pretty posh girl. And it's sort of like she's there doing the proper appearances and stuff. And then when we find out with the cool girl monologue, uh, we find out, no, this is what the real personality of Amy is. And it's kind of funny that you see this. And, and you obviously points out this thing so that when... Nick is on to be giving his impassioned speech. He's apologizing for his affairs and basically saying that, giving, selling it, this idea to Amy that you know he's so grateful of what she did for him. That what how she turned him because she knows that by appealing to her ego that that's going to be the way to sort of lure her out of hiding. And I think that's also at the point where um, she turns on on Desi because she seems pretty set on that point and hiding out with Desi, who's able to provide it with a rich life. I mean, everything about Desi is just all about this idea that money and material possessions make the man. He's sort of like, when he gives the guided tour of his uh, his lake house, and it's all sort of like, oh yeah, we've got the shower, which has got the steam setting, we've got the bathtub, which has got the jacuzzi setting, we've got the bed, which has got the posh sheets and stuff, and it's all these material things. It's like a... It's like a... Brett Easton Ellis novel, how obsessed he is with all the materialistic possessions of his uh, property and these are all the things that she believes that uh, she's deserving and and needing and now Desi can obviously provide her with compared to that sort of trailer lifestyle she was leading to previously so...
1: I, I mean, Desi's character is really is really I guess shorter than you'd imagine it to be but it also has this power of just having it delivers this purpose of why it's there so that we kind of have this motive to for her to find a way to exit and show how you know the extremes that she go to escape this and the little plans she has even in a trap like as she's trapped and serve in under surveillance in this rich house the things she gives up that amy wants more than this right she's not she's not you know like trailer trash (laughs) that she was pretending to be and obviously we've we've realized that she can't be like you can't she can't seem to live up to that either because obviously she her her appearances got blown and she you know she obviously got robbed because of it she's not as tough as she as she seems and I think that that's one of the really great points of the movie is that while Amy is, she's super smart and she has all the everything's planned to the T. But when things don't go to plan, she's not really as tough as she really seems to be. But then at the same time, her mind turns right away. She always seems like in in the back of her mind, if something goes bad, she already had the plan B, C, D all ready to go. So... Mm. While this was unexpected that she would be robbed by some, you know, some kids. <laughs> some, some, th- these friends-ish, uh, quote to air quotes, friends that she meets in this trailer park. She ends up, you know, she, she obviously right away thinks about the next scene going the unthinkable. And she goes for this person, which she claims has been, ha- had originally not been such a great person to her, <laughs> to the police. But yet she still goes for him to help and then she finds a way to manipulate him kind well, I of. Think... but then it didn't really take much manipulating because Desi wanted her in the first place right?
0: Yeah, I think that was the thing she always knew that because that, Desi is so hung up on her that you know, she could always go to, to him because he would always be there for him and he'd be willing to go along with... he'd be easy to convince to go in along with whatever scheme that she had in mind um, and I mean I really loved Neil Patrick Harris's performance in it, it was a real sort of change in pace because up um, to this point I mean he was in How- the Howard and Kumar movies basically playing himself and he was also carrying How I Met Your Mother along with uh, Cody Smol- Smothers which I mean that show was just being run into the ground at the point he came on to, to do Gongo and it was basically his character as the womanizing Barney that uh, was the main sort of appeal one other than, obviously, the aforementioned Cody as The Canadian Robin. Hmm. But that show was just painful to watch in its final seasons as they tried to force this Ross and Rachel situation in there. But I was so surprised that Neil Patrick Harris had such dramatic flair. And what? it's such a stripped-down character that he's playing here. It's nothing like I've seen him play before, but he just nails it perfectly. You totally believe that this is a guy who can you know he can quote quote proust which is always a sign of a douchebag if people want to quote proust especially in (laughs) french it's it's all the wannabe pseudo-intellectuals who get really hung up on uh on proust and you know 17th century plays and art um 18th century art and it's like please and it's funny that that you you know
1: i think that gone girl really i'm sorry i cut you off but i I think that gone girl really (laughs) in the case of Rosamund Pike or in the case of Neil Patrick Harris really opens a lot of doors for them in the sense that they delivered some really surprising unexpected roles and Neil Patrick Harris obviously this opens him up to being able to play um, a series of unfortunate events on Netflix as you know the main villain and it's it's just uh, I mean he does that role amazingly also I mean I I love how he plays that role um but i mean Neil Patrick harris you know like you think about how he starts right he starts didn't he start his fame with like dr horrible
0: <laughs> he was in doogie hauser originally he was a he was like a child star and then it was through howard and kumar that sort of like revived his career because they had this whole running joke about how the two main characters are obsessed with doogie hauser because you know he's a a fellow stoner and um originally Neil Patrick harris didn't want to do those. those the thing he thought, you know, he'd be taking the mech out of this role that he held so dear to him. And then, you know, he read the script and he thought it was really funny and through there that he got onto, like, How I Met Your Mother and it sort of snowballed on from there. But yeah, he was in Dr. Horrible as well. Um,
1: I think that was the first time I actually watched him in anything. So and that was how I remembered him being.
0: It's, yeah, it's really funny when you see him and he's, like, plays these, like, womanizing roles and stuff. And then you see him in real life and he's, like, this happily married gay man who posts like delightful things on Twitter about his kids and stuff I mean his Christmas tweets are always like so memorable it's sort of like oh I spent like 7 hours building toys and my daughter just wants to play with a broom (laughs) so (laughs) they're just like the most adorable uh, tweets I think on the um, Shaggy2Dope of um, the Insane Clown Posse (laughs) it comes from more like adorable tweets from surprising people Yeah, and St. Clown Posse talking about coaching the Sunday League football team is just such a surreal experience. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think he's he's really good. I think, but then again, everyone's very surprised in sort of casting here. Ben Affleck was considered box office poison when he's gone into this, even though I really love. But Ben Affleck, I think he's just can do no wrong for myself. But you know, he'd been doing like things like Lee, which, let's face it, I <laughs> mean, you you have a chance to work with your your hot girlfriend on a film, you know that's probably why he probably took it on and yes it wasn't the great film uh, but you know he went on like Joel Schumacher to make better movies and at the same time it's always really bizarre because you had him and Matt Damon who always like this double act especially in the 90s and everyone's like oh yeah Matt Damon's like the talented one and it's like no Matt Damon's not <laughs> Ben Affleck's the one you should be watching I think when Ben Affleck went on to be like focused on directing and do like Gone Baby Gone and The Town that I think uh, people started realizing and with Gone Girl, especially, it's sort of like, I think it changed in a lot of people's minds uh, what it was. And I think it did the same for like, so many people in the cast. When, as we said about the same with Rosalind Pike, I didn't think she could play crazy as well as she does. And here she taps into, like, Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct and um, the um, Nicole Kidman in, I think it's to, to die for the... Um, oh the Gus Van Sant film. Um, she really sort of tapped into a lot of uh, Femme for Tales in this, uh, in this film and sort of like took elements of those characters but went her own direction. So yes, while well, she's obviously got elements of Sharon Stone's character from Basing Instinct and you can see that especially in sort of like the uh, throat slit in sequence. Mm. Um, she's very much doing the character on her own terms which I think is, is always an important thing. You can't just like mimic what you've seen in some other films. You've got to play crazy your own way. And, um, yeah, I think there's just, there's just so many surprising performances throughout, but I think Ben, I think when we've looked at Finch's filmography throughout, he's always made surprising choices when it's come to the casting of his films, and it's always paid off. I mean, who'd have thought Meatloaf as Bob would be so enduring in Fight Club? <laughs> I don't know. Um... Trying to remember who plays Angel Face again.
1: Uh, Jared Leto.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, they'd have thought that uh, casting Jared Lowe just for the sole purpose of destroying his face would be the great move that it was. But you know, this is Fincher. He does, he does what Fincher does.
1: Yeah, I mean, Fincher is. You know, we've looked at this entire season. We've looked at his movies and the pro- progress that he's had is. I feel like he really does excel in making movies where, I mean, every single choice he makes is a bit surprising. Even the movies, types that he does. Uh, the best movies he has is is definitely more along the thriller kind of deal. Um, obviously, you have some you know, runaway unexpected hits like Social Network, which I know you, you love a lot. Um, so... I mean, this this working out and having and choosing these characters, I feel, is is good. I mean, especially at this point, I think it really helps that... I sometimes wonder whether, like, uh, Ben Affleck had some kind of say in in this whole thing. Because, I mean, at this point, I think he's already been... He's already directed what, one or two films at this point. And if you look at something like Gone Baby Gone, it's... It, it is very, it would be a movie you can picture Fincher doing. <laughs> yeah, I so, mean. I that... wonder, I wonder if, if having that kind of experience, going into this movie, kind of changes a little bit of just how we view Ben, ben Affleck at this point. It really kind of lands him this role because if he's able to direct movies like this, then obviously he has kind of like that darker side to his character that, of, of an actor that he that people can explore at this point
0: well, i think when it come to when it came to a, affleck i mean fincher really was fascinated with his sort of how he interacts with the with like paparazzi and the press especially when he was having a high profile romance with uh, jennifer lopez it was for sort of being photographed all the time and i think that was in particular what attracted him to casting affleck in the role mm-hmm. and um it's been obviously when they were like talking about the making of, of the film that when it comes to casting, roles, Finch basic likes to go on see the internet to look through pictures of actors to help him try and find the right actor for the role, and it was when he was looking at photos of Ben Affleck they noticed that peculiar smile that Affleck has uh, that sort of. Really ha- capture the emotion that Finch wanted this character to play, and we see it, as I said, during that appeal for help sequence where the report says, "You know, ask him to smile, and he just unthinkingly just smiles, even though it looks <laughs> it's as stupid as all hell for him to be smiling." It's in like a
1: goofy smile.
0: <laughs> That's right, and I mean the two, both Fincher and Affleck had a lot of sort of mutual respect for each other, and the fact that um, Affleck at one point he was like so convinced that uh, that Fincher as a director was like the only director he's ever worked with who could basically do any job on set better than they could. Um, a point that he actually made by the fact that um, he changed the lens setting on one of the cameras, just by like, the smallest amount, and he had a bet with like one of the crew members that Fincher wouldn't notice, and then <laughs> Fincher basically brought up, he was like, why does that camera look a little dim? So, I don't know why Fincher does it, but he just he's got such an eye for detail and you hear it like when he's like the most minute sort of sequences and he shoots them like 50 times with like this cubic like obsession of how all things go. And we saw it in um, Zodiac, the scene where um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character just throws down the notepad and he shot that scene like 50 times just because he wasn't happy with how the notepad landed just because he's constantly looking for how, a sh- how things should be shot and how they should look and we see it as well and just like how he lights the scenes we see the return of those yellows again which just look so nice and just I mean he shoots on digital and he makes it look like he's shooting on film which is no easy feat and we look at other directors like uh, Michael Mann who shoots on digital it just looks like garbage in comparison so I really don't know how Fincher does what he does but he just always seems to, to really nail that look, look for his films
1: Well, I mean, he has a lot of... I mean, we've been looking at it the entire season, his little trademarks as a director that really helps him build on... Especially because of the type of movies he chooses to make, that these trademarks really do help the movie visually. Especially, I think, in this one, we had a lot of, like, blue hues and stuff like that also. And it's it's just the concept of, of, of how visually down to right down to even how the colors in the scene and what's gonna pop out and what's supposed to blend with the background and things like that that really subconsciously and visually really like I guess visually and subconsciously change the the nature of the scene and how you feel about the scene. It builds an atmosphere and everything is with Vinter is so visual and he's such a He's such a master at creating it and really having that eye of how people are going to see this and how people are going to feel when they watch this that it it just really elevates the movie to a different level.
0: How did you think um, with the opening of this, this film? I mean, it was only on this time watching it. I mean, this is my fourth time, I think, watching this film that I realized that the film actually opens at the end. And I only... And only... <laughs> you really...
1: I'm, I, I tell you one thing. I am a huge fan. I, I think we've already, like, I mean, we've done a lot of movies that kind of start at the end. Yeah. So it kind of loops around. I love movies like that. Personally, I love movies like that and I notice it. And I thought it was so genius to do it like that for this movie. It's, it's... great. Like, I noticed the first time I watched it. I saw it was oh, because really? I loved it. I noticed it the first time. Um,. And I I love how how it does because I mean the first scene the last scene and it's completely because after you've had an understanding of this entire movie the meaning of what he says in you know in that in that in that monologue of his him questioning what you know oh what's in her mind or what she's thinking or whatever it it just um it has this because you've watched this whole what two hours and a half a uh, two and a half hour movie it changes the context of what it means when he asked those same questions as the ending of the movie. Yeah. And it's kind of like a mind-blowing moment, and I really, I, you know, I, it's it's really amazing because you suddenly, in the beginning, you feel like it's just, because you don't know who Amy, who Amy is, and you don't know who Nick is, when he talks about, you know, oh, you know, you sometimes wish you were, whatever, cracking open her head to see what she's, thinking how she's feeling or or what we've done to each other and stuff like that. You think about it like people say that sometimes when they're angry or when when you know, and kind of like um, you know, just kind of like, "Oh, I'm a curious about, you know, I'd like to look at what you're see what you're thinking, you know." But at the end of the movie when you say something like that after we've seen everything, the whole context changes and you're just like, "Now you understand why he's saying it and the fact that how is he going to get, it's more of like a despair because now you kind of feel like, well, how is Nick going to get out of this situation? Because now there's no out with what they've done, like with where they are at the end of the movie.
0: Oh, it's definitely so. And I think only Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind has done it as well as this film does. Because normally when we have the the ending at the start of the film, it's normally really sloppy. It's unneeded, but this time is really sort of clever and, it's this surprisingly moment of verbal violence that we have I mean talking about unspooling your wife's brains during your opening moments of your film is certainly a way to grab your audience's attention and certainly there's no sort of like a tanner card say oh you know four days previous or anything like that it just uh, goes straight into the film there's no reference to the time shift at all which is really kind of clever and that's why I didn't pick it up I mean obviously I'm clearly not as clever as Kim who picked it up the first time but
1: well, um, I have the I have the perk of having read the book, so I notice the details more. Right. I, I've already yeah.
0: <laughs> but I mean, it leads me as well leads into when she returns home, and Nick's now faced with the fact that here we have a woman who's willing to slice open another man's throat with a box cutter, um, to manipulate evidence and people's perception. To the fact that the police are basically like, you know, you got your wife back. What more do you want? Um, there's, there's sort of, like frustration the fact that they know that they can't beat the case. And the fact it's been escalated to the feds who have essentially closed the case as well means that it's done. There's nothing else that can be done here. And he's now living with this woman who could potentially kill him. But the way she views it is that, you know, no other woman is going to kill for you the way I did. And it's sort of like, it's almost like she wants to be Celebrated for the it's like this uh, romantic gesture—the fact that she killed another man to create this life for them. Um, but I think he really sells that sort of like this idea that you're living with a crazy person really well. The fact he goes and sleeps in the guest room and he's padding around in his socks to try and make as little noise as possible, and just uh, essentially keep her as happy as uh, and and maintain this sort of like uh, illusion of domestic bliss that they they're supposedly having, but prior to when she when we have the shower sort of sequence when she returns home and we get you know full frontal nudity from both ross and pike and ben affleck so <laughs> exciting times if you wanted to see that um i love the fact that uh affleck was basically talked into the scene by Fincher, saying he was going for a european feel that he wanted to remove the vanity from these actors and to shoot it all warts and all and i think it's just a really effective scene, it really portrays what we needed to do, it's not about Gretchen's nudity or giving uh, <laughs> giving um, Affleck's fans something to talk about We seemed to be a bizarre talking point, whenever people want to talk about this film they really wanted to talk about it, it was like the end of Wild Things and Kevin Bacon's nudity I don't know <laughs> I'm never sure how to respond to people want to talk about actors' nudity on film so
1: I don't know. I mean, the, the, I, I feel like the scene did it's job, it, you know, it, it it showed a bit of, yeah, I don't know, vulnerability. It showed a bit of the fact that, you know, they, they're obviously, there's no wires, there's no nothing, and that's it. But yep. it, it also, it, it kind of aligned their relationship a little bit that, you know, even naked, they're not very, <laughs> they're not very interested in each other. <laughs> it's really just to talk out the details about, to make sure that, <laughs> They're not gonna, you know, she's not gonna be, she's not gonna have any issues with this.
0: Oh, yeah, and you can tell she's completely in co- c- control of the situation as well. The fact that, you know, she commands him to pass the shampoo, and he does it like, instead of just like, you know, get your own damn shampoo, he just does it because he's just like, basically knows that he's just now her lapdog. He has no control of the situation. He, She's smarter than him, and she can play the situation in because the press are all on her side. And he's yeah. essentially this guy that's been given a second chance to, make it, to repair his marriage.
1: Yeah, and, um, and at the same time, I mean, I think that one of the best parts, and one of the pe- best parts is that she plays the situation so well when she comes back that she's even able to kind of talk down on the cops, right? So the, you know, the, the detective that was in, uh, responsible for the case... She's been on this, and then she realizes all these, this, the, all these issues with what she's seeing. Uh, you know, while she's being kidnapped by Desi, being her, you know, obviously her version of the story, and she's seeing all these pl- these plot holes. But at the same time, she's able to play the situation where, if I didn't come back, you would have arrested the wrong guy, aka her husband. Yeah. So it means that you know she has this situation under control the entire time. And how she does it, I don't know. But, I mean, it's one of the fascinating points about Amy is that she's always ahead of you. She's always thought through... She's already thought through every single situation that she... Every single angle of the situation that she needs to handle.
0: We see around. I mean, she's (laughs) she's, uh, certainly a ruthless personality who's willing to do anything to sort of fair for a story. I mean, we see her inserting a wine bottle into herself uh, when she's creating this creating these um, elements to sort of back up her fake rape claims that uh, that enable her to return home without any sort of major questions and to sell this idea that she was kidnapped by Desi rather than her original plan, obviously, of se- sending her husband up the river, so mm-hmm. um, But no, I think this is... Uh, I think mean, this is a fascinating movie, and it's one that actually surprisingly stands up to repeat viewings. You wouldn't think that a film with, with reliant on a big twist would hold up to the same The same as Seven in many ways. Um, Seven, you can just watch over and over again, and it's just fascinating to just take apart and see all the little details and how Fincher crafts this world, and I think the same can be certainly said for Gonga, which is kind of like, in many ways, him returning to the same sort of world that he did with seven and just like now as a sort of older and more experienced director being able to just like explore darker themes again and just play around with with a similar sort of world really of having a a villainous character who's able to manipulate and ultimately win out
1: yeah, yeah. no i mean i to- i don't i totally agree because i mean Movies... I think one of the main things going into this movie I was worried about is that it wouldn't stand up to a second viewing. Because after my theater viewing, and I think I watched it maybe once after, after I bought the movie. And then this has, like, been a while. It's been a few years since I've seen it. And yeah. I was a bit worried that the ending, like, re-watching it, I wouldn't, like, at this point, would I still feel that kind of, you know, that excitement about it. And it surprisingly did live up to how I remembered it, but knowing the twist and knowing all these things, it's just so, it's still so fun to watch in the sense it's because it's based on these characters and you notice these little things about these characters and, and those little, and and the, and the movie is paced really well. I mean, after a few movies of being, I guess, not paced too well in the last, last few that we've seen. Um, it it really does help that it's a different feeling, I guess, because if you talk about length, this movie isn't sh- a lot shorter than his previous two three movies, but at the same time, it has that it has you really notice how much more enjoyable this one is to watch.
0: It really it was good to see Fincher doing another dark thriller, especially after the girl with the dragon tattoo. I think girl with dragon tattoo already had this sort of like. Um, expectation behind it were, when it came to Girl, I don't think the property was as well known. Um, I mean, obviously, you're you're a fan and it definitely had its fans out there. Uh, But, for myself, I didn't sort of, like, wasn't sort of aware of the book. I wasn't aware of, like, it having all this sort of hype around it. So, it felt like a very unique property. And when we had all the promotional material of uh, Amy on the Emmy's sort of corpse on the uh, the gurney being straddled by Ben Affleck. I think it was all. this it's like, what the hell is this about? So it was um, a definitely error of not knowing what to expect from this one, and I think that combined with like the the casting choices, it was just um, it was just a pleasant surprise around. And I think it was actually on this watch. I actually bumped up my rating. Originally, I gave this a four point five on Letterboxd, and I bumped it up to a full five. So it's uh a proud member of that very rare five star club I have.
1: <laughs> five stars is definitely hard to I guess. Hard to get there, I think.
0: It's it's so hard to give a film five stars in in, in my head. I know there's people out there who go give for like five stars away, but when I'm looking at films that I want to give five stars, it's sort of like got to have that rewatchability to it. It's not just about having that engaging experience the first time around, it's like can I see myself watching this over and over and over again? Which It's the repeatability which sort of like really sort of knocks the film into from being a four star into a five star. Um, It's like Joker. I mean, I I really enjoy Joker, but I can't see myself watching it all the time. (laughs) So, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anything else you want to talk about? Obviously, brings us the end of our. uh, your view of gongo i mean before we obviously wrap this uh, one up i mean for reviewing if you obviously like gongo what would you recommend pairing with it
1: uh well i have two picks um okay. the first is um another Gillian Flynn adapted movie i don't think it's a great movie let's just put that out there i don't think it's a great movie But I still think the story's pretty good, and it's, uh, 2015's, uh, Dark Places with Charlize Theron and, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and Nicholas Holt. And, uh, yeah, no, it has, I mean, Gillian Flynn is really great at writing these dark storylines, so this one does get a bit darker, um, I personally prefer her other movie, but that was adapted in a TV series on some channel that I don't get, so (laughs) I've never seen it yet. Um... But, yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely a good one to pair with this one as just, like, a continuation of just watching um, Flynn's story come to, you know, to to, to the big screen. Uh, Other than that, I mean, I honestly, uh, I mean, I could have gone with Gone Baby Gone, but I've already used that up in, I think, the last one and a few other picks for Fincher, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna use it in this one, but um, I think I thought about because of the how the movie is structured and how the timeline is structured i thought that memento would be a pretty good one to pair with this one uh just because that one kind of has that um mixed up storyline where the the plot kind of meets in the middle kind of thing where the story continues uh in the middle and the kind of the end and the beginning kind of thing progresses right
0: yeah um for myself I've got a couple Uh, first up would be Nightcrawler from 2014 uh, another Jake Gyllenhaal film um, where he Mm -hmm. basically uh, plays this plays this petty thief called Lewis Bloom who realises that you know he can make more money by becoming a nightcrawler who are basically journalists who track down criminal activities and uh, and collect footage for the local news stations and it's really this sort of evolution of this guy who starts off at the base sort of level and how he sort of uh, how his ruthlessness uh, sort of gets him to the top but it's an absolutely engaging performance by uh, by Gillinghall and um, one that um, sort of first of introduced Dan Gillinghall to the world really who also gave us Velvet Buzzsaw from in 2019 which I really liked but I think a lot of people were kind of disappointed because it wasn't The movie that they thought it was going to be Um, another great film I would recommend as well would be Stoker from Park Chan-wook, his uh, English language debut, again featuring Nicole Kidman who we uh, mentioned already, Um, and obviously speaking of Nicole Kidman, I would also recommend checking out To Die For from uh, 1995, uh, which was also one of those key inspirations I mentioned already for Rosamund Pike's character here so I'd uh, recommend checking that one out as well Thank you. Good choices. So that brings us to the end of another season of movies and tea. Um, thank you as always for listening. But uh, before we, uh, obviously, close out the season, I think it's obviously best of uh, as we like to do to uh, go back and look at the movies which were stood out for us. You know, our best, our worst, and uh, that hidden gem. So, Kim, what? Uh, where should we start with? Should we start with the best film or worst film?
1: uh maybe hidden gem
0: so what was your hidden gem of the fincher filmography
1: i mean i think you pointed it out pretty (laughs) well at one point (laughs) uh my hidden gem is the game yeah i mean that i mean if you look at every other movie in in fincher thing i mean a bunch of them got i mean second half of his stuff almost all got nominated in the oscars it got a lot of a lot of attention and then, I mean, if you look at the movies before, I mean, Seven is really popular, Fight Club is really popular, you have all these movies that are really popular, but then people always forget that the game is by Fincher, or Alien 3. <laughs> and I mean, the game is, I mean, obviously Alien has, whether you like it or not, Alien 3, whether you like it or not, it. you still have a general knowledge. I mean, I, I'm sure a, a decent amount of people have seen it. and. That leads, you know, after some kind of deduction, I mean, we're left with not too many titles. <laughs> and the game is one of those movies where I feel like it doesn't really get enough attention. Uh, I mean, obviously, it it has this mystery, this really extreme thriller deal to it. And this just really messed up game that takes Michael Douglas's character for, for I mean, a cross-border adventure (laughs) so it's uh it's really it 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 is quite it is quite amazing like that movie really uh you know (laughs) it's kind of mind-blowing if you think back to it
0: oh definitely so i've in the game for myself also my hidden gem of the filmography i mean it's only aged like fine wine since its release and it's only really got better since it um, initially came out and I think it's the fact that we've not seen anything close to how it looks or how clever it is that that sort of only makes it stand out Um, combined with this is the fact that it's Michael Douglas playing Man of Power you know what he does best and some interesting support from Sean Penn it's just a really interesting story and a fun thriller just how it builds up for this idea of a all-controlling company that can basically come in and take control of your life and be untouchable at the same time. It's just how that story unfolds. How we see one character being broken down, um, just having everything slowly stripped away from himself, only to sort of get that one full final uh, reveal at the end and. I think it, yeah, it's it's one of those films that when we cover, when we looked at the game on the show, and I found myself like for at least two days afterwards, like going on my film groups, you know, like Germans Guy to midnight cinema and and whatnot, and um, saying like, oh, has anyone seen the game? It's like, have you seen the game recently? It's just really, you watch it and then you just want to go and find more people to talk about it because you forgot how good it is. So it's definitely a, I agree with yourself. It's this filmography, so.
1: So yeah, I mean, <laughs> agreed on that point. I have a feeling we have the same choice for the worst movie. Also, <laughs> so what's your worst worst movie of the of uh, Fincher? Ah, uh,
0: the worst choice is the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. If you if you're <laughs> taken on a date to to see if someone takes you this as like their date movie, do not sleep with them. Just walk out and demand that they pay for dinner. This this film was tedious to. The max is three free hours of overindulgence. It feels like, um, and I think as we would when we talked about, it. you could hack out like an hour out of this film, and it would make no difference. It's this idea of
1: it would make it more enjoyable if you hacked it. Oh, an
0: probably. Hour.
1: I would. I would have changed my rating if this this movie was an hour shorter.
0: But yeah, just this idea that we have to cover every era of this guy's life just so we can keep we can get from point a to point b it just became absolutely tedious and even like the magic of fincher couldn't sort of save it or provide anything interesting enough to sort of hold our attention for a full three hours certainly so
1: especially when you know if you if if you if you haven't listened to our episode on curious case of benjamin button you will find it that we find we actually found supporting actor characters a lot more interesting than the main hmm. character which you know is a sign of um i guess not such a great movie
0: <laughs> no and i mean there's obviously people out there are gonna say you know girl with a dragon tattoo or alien free yeah um it's kind of funny with alien free that i was i when i was uh watching the trailer for Gungo again, the some guys review video popped up and it's sort of like, oh I'm not covering Alien Free because it's, Finch has disowned it so it's not part of the Finch filmography, it's like, no it very much is part of the Finch filmography and you are a cretin for not appreciating it um, but and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo I think is I thing as we, we watched ourselves, I mean it's an adult thriller it's not perfect but at the same time it's still it was still enjoyable um and it certainly had some interesting moves compared to Benjamin Button which just had nothing really happening for it so
1: i think i think i think with Benjamin Button i think one thing became really clear is that fincher is the best at doing obviously darker content i'm not saying that Benjamin Button wasn't darker in content because it had that you know fantastical twist but it definitely wasn't the usual type of film that he did um it was more of a drama and i think that when you do a drama like that it it's hard to i think i think it it didn't the only thing that would help it was how the film was shot and visually the movie was pretty nice to look at but it was just the story itself that I think for me didn't work too well but yeah I mean we're, we're gonna leave that to people who haven't listened to it or haven't watched it or whatever I mean you can go back listen to our episode that sort of thing um, yeah so I mean now we move on to the best what is your best
0: the best is, is so tricky because especially for anyone who's so like, <laughs> who's, who's had listened to me talking enough about film and you know that I already had like a couple of horses in this this race with just my strong opinions on it, so it was all like really sort of a toss up really um, between Social Network and Alien Free, which is my favorite, which may be surprising. I mean, especially as I love Seven, I love Fight Club, but there's something about those two movies that I just return to time and time again, but. As it won out Best Decade, and it won out here again, Social Network, for myself, is the best film of Fincher's filmography. I love that film so much, and it didn't deserve to be as good as it is. I mean, as we said on the episode, it's a movie about Facebook. This is a TV movie escalated to grander heights just because Fincher is the one lensing it. And it's still an astonishing film, and just one that I just find find fascinating still even after multiple viewings it's still one that uh, never fails to engage me whenever I see it. But what about yourself Kim?
1: Mine was a toss up but not the two that you had. I, probably, I wasn't <laughs> so...
0: expected to be especially with Alien 3 that would be a real wild card on your part so
1: No I, I I really like Alien 3 I have no issues with Alien 3 uh, but I I mean that, that wasn't even near the bottom yeah. for me so it is i mean for me obviously my two favorite are the two similar movies and that would be gone girl and seven one is obviously a movie that i really love and is more modern and seven is the movie that actually i was the first movie that i watched of fincher that really got me like really really like was so memorable in my mind um i'm not gonna lie at this point i still I mean, it really depends on the day, <laughs> but after you know having such an intense conversation about Gone Girl, mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna say that that's my best, based on today's mood. Like tomorrow, it might be seven, but today, it's Gone Girl. Fantastic. <laughs> it's just, it's just you know. I think the deal with Gone Girl is not only is it's it's a rare thing to have a good like a really great thriller and then on top of that it's a really great thriller that i think that people who haven't read the book has the same kind of enjoyment as the people who have read the book and that's really hard to achieve because usually people are more on the side where if you've read the book you're gonna have certain expectations of it and if things don't go, obviously, I'm sure there are people out there who are listening to this who's read Gone Girl and probably didn't like some of the choices <laughs> they made in the adaptation. I'm not, you know, I have no problems with that. I'm just saying for me, Gone Girl, I think, is an adaptation where I went to the theater with someone who has not read the book. And they still followed the story really well. And this isn't an easy story to adapt it's very complicated the storyboard is must be like crazy complicated uh when they put this together so i mean the fact that the person i went with like my husband understood this completely and then for me who's read the book before and still and knowing the twist still got so much enjoyment out of it and even on repeat viewings i think that's just a sign of like greatness in a movie
0: awesome so there you have it there's our uh, the end of our season of David Fincher films we hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed going through the filmography and uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank you and say thank you to all our guests um, Heather from Head at a Time Nick Rehack from uh, French Toast Sunday also Norman from Flick Hunter and um, yeah it's just been an absolutely funny. fascinating season to uh, go through these films especially as we all feel that we uh, we know them so well so to actually go and deep dive into them and just look at them in order and see the evolution of finch as directors it's been a fascinating uh, process to go through but um as always uh we'd just like to say thank you as always for listening and uh Make sure you uh, do hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us. Um, also, make sure you uh, check out our Facebook and Twitter page. We're also on Instagram as well. And you can check out our full archive of episodes, including our previous season and movies and tea Um But until next time, thank you for, as always for listening. Thank you to my co host Kim. And we will see you soon. Until then, good night.